Acts 15, and we're going to look at the entire chapter, but we're going to only read verses 7 through 11. So as you are turning there, or tapping there, hear the word of God and read it along silently with me as I read it out loud. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. When we look at this passage, you're looking at essential and non-essential things. And sometimes that's hard to perceive in our lives, is it not? Um, when you look at all of your relationships, whether it be within your family, among your tight circle of friends, or your workplace, and beyond your neighborhood, your city, it's hard sometimes because our passions get in the way, our reason isn't always consistent. And we, sometimes we don't see the situation and the person clearly enough to decipher what is really essential, what is really worth fighting for, and what is not. Where we need to use our wisdom to cultivate unity versus division. And where we need to use wisdom to cultivate division and not unity. Um, it's hard. And uh, the more and more I am living with my wife and my two-year-old daughter, the more and more I feel unwise and not at full capacity at times to know for sure what is essential and what is not. When we look at our passage today, you know, the church should be united, right? Christianity, it shouldn't be divided. And yet, in our passage we see that the founders of our faith, there was a certain point where they refused to compromise, where they refused to be united because there was too much at stake. The important things could not be dispensed with in order to promote a unity that was based upon non-essentials. That's the first point. The apostles refused to compromise about salvation. And they said that salvation is by faith alone. When you look at verses 1 through 11, and you can skim through it right now if you want, but we see two groups of people. We have the founders of our faith. We have Paul and Barnabas. Um, and they're saying salvation is by faith alone. And then we have some Jews who have come down from Jerusalem, and they're saying, no, Salvation is not by faith alone. You need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So, what is circumcision? Like, 
we know what circumcision is, but what's the significance of circumcision? Why did they insist that people need, needed to be circumcised to be saved, to not go to hell? Well, circumcision began in Genesis 17, where God made a covenant with Abraham. And in that chapter, we see God commanding Abraham that every child who was, every male child who, was, who became eight years old needed to be circumcised. And if the person was not circumcised, the person would be cut off from his people. So instead of the, instead of the skin being cut off, God is saying, if you didn't circumcise your child, your child will be cut off from my community. That's what God commanded Abraham. And the people, you see, when you think about that, it's a direct command from God to Abraham, the father of their faith. And when you think about that, it's kind of understand, it's understandable why some people would say, no, you really need to be circumcised. All you have to do is look at the law of Moses, and you can understand that this is where it all began. This is directly from God, right? Um, Paul's response was a little different. What he says in Romans 2, and if you want to turn to it, by all means, please do. Romans 2, verses 25 through 29, he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So he's saying, if you break any part of the law, even though you're circumcised physically, you're treated like if you were never circumcised. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regard regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is why Paul had to, Paul and Barnabas had to be divided. They could not be united with these Jews who came from Jerusalem over this issue. They couldn't be like, hey, I understand that we're, we disagree on how you're saved. You say you're saved by works, by circumcision. We say that you're saved by faith, but hey, let's just get together and have a good time. The reason why Paul and Barnabas could not allow for that is because it was very clear at this time what God's will was. And his will was for both Jew and Gentiles to believe in Jesus Christ. And through that belief in that one person, through Jesus Christ, they were to be saved. So what Paul and Barnabas understood was that everything in salvation and your future, I mean, you, when you think about your future, you think about your next job or your graduation or your marriage or whatever. But essentially, if you want to think about our true objective future, that's only the immediate next few years of our, of our eternal lives. If you want to think about the future of our eternal soul, it reaches into heaven or hell. So it's a really serious matter. 
And what Paul was basically saying is, we cannot compromise on this because not only are souls at stake, but this is what God has revealed to be the truth, regardless of what you believe to be the truth. You see, in a, in a relativistic, relativistic society, what you believe and what you think is the core or the fulcrum of truth. But the argument that Paul is making is that it really doesn't matter what you believe to be salvation is. It doesn't matter what your subjective belief is. This is what's true. And God has revealed that salvation is by faith. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. You're saved by faith. This is what Paul told us not to be divided on. He told us not to be divided, when you look in the New Testament, over three major things. Number one, he told us not to be divided over what church leader you follow. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 through 13, he says, What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul uses these rhetorical questions to say, you shouldn't be dividing over what human being, what human messenger you're choosing to affiliate and associate and be affect emotionally and mentally connected with. That is not a valid ground for division in the church. The second thing he told us not to divide over is excluding church members. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, he said that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. He says this in context to the illustration he gives about how the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and how the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. One member within the church should not be dividing over whether other members should be a part of the group or not. The third thing Paul commanded us not to divide over is the exclusion of non-members. So he told us not to divide over church leaders. He told us not to divide over church members. And he told us not to divide over non-church members. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And what he's saying here is that there were false teachers who were saying that the Gentiles didn't belong in a Jewish congregation. They were saying that the Jews are the chosen people of God. And if you want to be a part of us, you need to be circumcised. And what Paul was saying is, no. The church should never be divided over these people because they're different from you. Because their rituals and their practices are different from you. And what he was saying is that we should never divide over these three things. Over church leaders, members, and non-members. But what, he, what Paul is teaching is that disunion is necessary 
when people oppose God's will for the Gentiles to believe in the gospel. When you look in verse 7, in, Acts, in our passage today, Acts 15, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What Paul was saying is that God firsthand gave Peter a vision showing him, teaching him, that the Gentiles were no longer to be regarded as people who could never ever be one of us, but that the Gentiles, just as Jews, had equal standing in God's grace and in his salvation. And that circumcision and things of that sort should never divide the people of God, even though they're different from each other. That's why Paul made it a point to be disunited, to be divided over these Judaizers, over these people from Jerusalem who were saying, you cannot be a part of us until you become a Jew. The Gentiles, another point of disunion that Paul made was that the Gen, uh, that Peter made was the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, verse 8, without first becoming Jewish. So when you look at verse 8, Peter continues to say, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And what Peter was saying is, God didn't accept these Gentiles after they were physically circumcised. God accepted them after the Holy Spirit came into their lives. After the heart started to change. After they started to understand who Jesus was and why he came to earth. And after they realized how important he was to their lives. God saved the Gentiles just like he saved us. That's Peter's argument. He's saying that we're no different from each other because of that. And when you look in verse 11, or let's see, verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 first. The Jews were placing a yoke on the Gentiles that the Jews never were able to bear. Complete obedience to the the Mosaic law. And he ends his argument in verse 11 by saying, it is not through circumcision and not through complete obedience to the law, which we couldn't even keep ourselves, but it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're saved. And if you look in the Greek, the grace of the Lord Jesus, it doesn't appear in the English Bible, but in Greek it's placed first in that sentence. And whenever in Greek language, Whenever a word or a phrase is placed first, it is being emphasized as being really important, so you should not forget this. It's kind of like putting things in all caps when you text, right? I mean, he wasn't yelling, right? But it's basically saying this is really important, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning God has shown favor to them, and that's why we should accept them. You know how sometimes you trust someone because you know because they know someone that you trust. For example, I remember um, my sister, and I was getting ready for marriage. And of course, there were some hiccups along the way, right? Mainly because I was very stubborn, right? Um, but 
I remember my sister, who's six years older than me, I remember us having a private conversation together, and she basically said, Tay, but she said my name in Korean, which is Hung Tae. She said, Hung Tae. I go, what? <laughs> she said, whoever you choose, I trust you, so I trust them. I trust you, so I trust them. And I love them, I love her, because I love you. That's the argument that is being made here. What he's saying is, God has accepted them. So since God has accepted them, you should accept them too. Because you love the Lord. And if the Lord that you love has shown favor to them, has shown grace, then you should show them grace as well. Even though you're very different from each other. Now, I made a point saying, I've showed you Peter's argument and Paul's position about what point the church needs to be divided over if necessary, right? And that's salvation. In matters of salvation, we need to stand strong. If anyone denies that you can be saved by something else other than Jesus Christ, right, then we need to stand firm. Now you say, well, okay, God commanded Jesus Christ in that you're saved by faith, but God also commanded that you need to be circumcised to the Jews, and if you weren't, you'd be cut off. So isn't God contradicting himself? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> you know, God is God. He's free to reveal his will in increments. But here's the thing. God has revealed, finally and in completion, revealed his will through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his person and work, is God's will. He has shown us his will. If you ever want to know God's will, you have to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Anything outside of Jesus Christ is us seeking salvation by works. Now, for the Jews, it was circumcision. It can be anything for us. Okay? Whatever you put your trust and faith in, right? Now, I know religion has a technical definition, but if I can broaden the definition of that word, religion is anything that you trust in or place faith in, that you abide by and that you obey, right? Because you've, you believe it is right. That's a religion. It can be anything. You can try to find salvation. You can try to find eternal security or security in life through any other means. You can try to find acceptance through any other means. For the Jews at this time, it was circumcision. For us, depending on what your values are and what you idolize. Even this morning, through a conversation with my wife, I was reminded once again what my idol is. And my idol is, I want this church plant to do well. And you can tell that you have an idol when that is threatened and where it's taken from you or you feel there is something hindering you from having complete control over that or complete possession. And when you get angry and when you get embittered and when you cherish that, Thing more than how you treat a person, 
how you communicate with the person, how your heart feels to the person, because you can communicate very well, and yet your heart can be full of anger. When you notice that about yourself, you have identified an idol. And that's, I was, re, I was reminded of my idol today. And I realized that I was trying to earn my security through my ministry and not through Jesus Christ. See, the ultimate question that brought me to that point was, if I only had Jesus Christ and I lost this church plant, would I be happy? Right? That was the question. And when you can replace church plant with something else, when you replace that with something else, and your answer to that, like me, was, I don't know, or I'm not sure, maybe, or no, you've identified your idol. You've identified how you are requiring circumcision to find salvation and security. This speaks directly into our lives today. Even though we don't value circumcision like the Jews did, we have replaced circumcision with something else in order to control acceptance and security in our lives. For the Jews, it was circumcision. For us, fill in the blank. Now, just because Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they took this position about being divided over salvation, doesn't mean that they were abrasive and doesn't mean that they were off-putting to people. They emphasize unity as well. And they recognize three things that you need to be united. Okay? So salvation is an essential. If you disagree on salvation, there cannot be any unity. But you can disagree on, on non-essentials. And there are three things that you need to have that unity in place. When you look at verses 12 through 35, it's the Spirit of God that is working. It's the Word of God that guides us. And it's discipleship with one another that grows us. Okay? I'm not going to go through everything because of lack of time, but things like signs and wonders that God has done, that's pointing to the Holy Spirit, the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, they say. They have the Holy Spirit in mind. They see that God, they have an understanding that it's not just a matter of lining up certain controllable uh, components and decisions and plans in our lives and strategies in place in order to have unity. Unity cannot be obtained just by pure formula and the execution of a nicely uh, uh, structured formula. Unity needs the presence and the work of God. And that's why we need prayer, because prayer is depending upon the presence and work of God. Secondly, the word. James quotes from Amos chapter 9. And in that quote, there's a portion where he says, The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. He directly teaches the Jews who are saying, These Gentiles can never be one of us unless they become like us first. And he says, I will quote you from the book that you treasure so much. I will quote you 
from our own Bible and show you that from the beginning, God's plan was to include these people that you feel should not be included unless they meet certain criteria. And thirdly, discipleship. We need leaders. We need each other. When you look at leaders, they're not all cookie-cutter leaders, okay? They're not going to see everything eye to eye. Look at Paul and James, guys, okay? These are church leaders. These are founders of our faith. They're authors of our New Testament. But you look at Paul and what he wrote in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then you look at James chapter 2, verse 24, and he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Are they contradicting each other? They are not. What's happening there is they're addressing two very different crowds. You have Paul who's addressing people who say, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the law in order to be saved. He says, no, you don't. You just need the grace of God. And then you have James, who's confronting people who say, hey, we're saved. God forgave us, so we don't need to follow any laws. And it's okay. God, God's kind of okay with that because of Jesus. right? And what James says is, no, you cannot just say you believe in, Christ, in, in Jesus Christ and, and live like a non-Christian. You know, you can't do that. That's not true salvation. True salvation, yes, you're saved by faith, but your works show that you are saved. It shows that, you, that God has shown favor to you and that you have been forgiven. You see, both of these leaders, Paul and James, appear in this one passage to guide and disciple the believers. And both of them, though they're coming from very different points of view, have one unshakable common ground, and that is Christ on the cross and the forgiveness and salvation that he gives. And you see, those are non-essentials. Those perspectives and those, fo those focuses that we have, they should never divide us. But it actually should unify us and complete the body of Christ because we are not our whole self without the other. And that's why discipleship is absolutely necessary. We're not just looking for people who are just like us, cookie-cutter people. That's the mistake of the Jews who came down from Jerusalem and, and wanted these Gentiles out of their lives or become a Jew, and then we'll think about accepting you into the outer circle, but never in our core circle. You can be God-fearers, and that's what we'll call you, but you can never be a Jew. You see, the grace of God is completely different. It's completely destroyed that paradigm. And it basically said, from the beginning, I have ordained that both Jew and Gentile should come and be saved by grace and by faith in my son. And it's not because everybody is the same. There are a lot of other things I have here, but I'm going to spare you the details because they're non-essential right now. But one thing I do want to point out before we close, the third point, disagreement is unavoidable. Disagreement is unavoidable. Very important because sometimes we feel like disagreement is something that should not happen and it should be avoided. And if you didn't, you weren't smart enough or you were lazy. However, have you ever thought that God ordained predestined disagreement? Why? Well, 
before we go to that, some people think there's disagreement because God messed up or because God doesn't exist and we just made this all up. But of course, from that premise, I'm not going to even consider that because we love the word and God has opened our eyes to see the truth. Disagreement is important because disagreement reminds us that we are not Jesus Christ. We are not the saviors of those around us, and we are not the savior of ourselves. We disagree because we're limited and because sin corrupts us, and we are fallen, and we fall short of the glory of God, and we should never think that we deserve to be the source of God's glory. Because once you start thinking like that, it's going to be a us versus them culture. I'm right, you're wrong culture. Disagreement is unavoidable. The reason why I'm bringing this up is not because I think it's important. It's because it's in the text, guys. Paul and Barnabas, they were, they were I don't know, Batman and Robin. Right? They were like Superman and Supergirl. They were like... Tony Stark and, I don't know, I guess he doesn't have anybody, right? And what's his, what's his robot? It's, it's not Siri, what is it? Jarvis, Tony Stark and Jarvis, shaking his head in shame, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Paul and Barnabas disagreed. It says in verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. They were so united. But when you come to verse 37 through 40, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them with them one who had withdrawn from them, etc., etc. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark, and verse 40, Paul chose Silas, and they parted ways. The duo was broken up. Batman and Robin no longer existed. What, I mean, how do you guys, how would you feel if Batman and Robin stopped? When Robin became Nightwing, I was heartbroken. It's like, this is wrong. So wrong. And then the new Robins who came in, that's not Robin. Nightwing is Robin. Disagreement is unavoidable, but not irreconcilable. In fact, disagreement, I will be more bold to say that God ordained there to be disagreement, to not show us our frailty and our limitations and our sinfulness and our utter need to depend upon Jesus Christ. He showed us, he gave us disagreement because he wants to show us who's really in control. And that's him. Disagreement is unavoidable, but it's not irreconcilable. Because as you read through your New Testament, and as you read through Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, all written by Paul. You see, in Acts, Paul didn't like Mark because he flaked. 
But when you come to Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4, Paul says of Mark, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, greets you. Luke alone, 2 Timothy 4, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He said that while he was in prison. You see, disagreement is unavoidable, and we need to change how we think about disagreement. It's not something that shouldn't happen, and it's not something that should be avoided. And if it does happen, it's not because someone has been stupid or lazy. In fact, disagreement happens to people who are devoted to the Lord's will because it shows us who's really in control and it shows us who the true Savior is. And it is not Paul and it is not Barnabas and it's not Mark and it's not Peter. It's not any one of us. The true Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's hard sometimes to see what is really essential and what is not. But in those moments of very confusing times that by the Holy Spirit, by the Word, and through the discipleship that's happening in your life, through the imperfect people that God is placing around you, you have to prayerfully navigate that to see which course of action you need to take that brings glory to God. But in the midst of that, if there is one thing that you should never forget, is that whether you disagree or agree, and how you work together, whether you're going to unite or divide, may Christ be the reason for why you do it. And nothing and no one else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us together to look at your word and to see that in the midst of human imperfection, your will is not thwarted. Your will is not hindered. But God, in the midst of human frailty, rather, your will is perfected. And so, Lord, give us wisdom and strength so that we will know when to divide and when to unite, that the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and, this, and the discipleship that you give us through those around us may continue in our lives, God, so that when people see us, they may see how beautiful and powerful and true you are. In Jesus' name, amen.